I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 1. We'll finish chapter 1 with a study of verses 28 through 32. The book of Romans is the Apostles, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome, a very mixed church, a church full of Gentiles and a church with a Jewish portion of the congregation as well. It's multicultural, but it's also doctrinally diverse, philosophically diverse, and the Apostle writes to them with the hope specifically that they'll come to know their need for Christ and come to know Christ specifically better. And so as we come again to the book of Romans this morning, uh, we are once again in Paul's discourse on the doctrine of sin. It's a heavy and a weighty doctrine, and it is my hope that you will submit yourself to it and that you'll derive benefit from it. The book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 28 through 32 Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have heard your word. And Lord, we pray that you would bear its power over us and in us. That Lord, we might be brought low. Oh Lord, subdue us by its teaching. O Lord, conform us through its mercies and its grace. And Lord, put upon our hearts a great measure of conviction that we would run from sin and into the kind arms of Jesus. Our Father in heaven, we pray all of this in his holy name. Amen. You and I like control over our lives, or at least we like the sense that we have control of our lives. With each passing day and with each year that goes by, I'm more and more, if I confess, reminded of my lack of control. In fact, it seems like more of a management of relative chaos than my directing things in the way I think they ought to go. Nonetheless, we like to control parts of our lives. We like to control what relationships we have. We like to control where we go, what we see. We like to control what we read, what we hear. We like it to be that way. Why? 
Because in ourselves, if we can control it, we could keep out things that we don't like and draw near to things that we do. For relationships, if we think that it hurts us or it is displeasant to be with this or that person, we can simply not be with them. Just disappear. Cut them off. Stay away from them. If it's a place that we would go, a place that makes us feel bad or doesn't affirm who we are, or a place that we struggle to get to or to be at, we can just plan to be elsewhere, can't we? Because after all, we like comfort. We like places where we feel at home. If it's media, we can block out things that we don't like to watch, can't we? I mean, after all, we have remote controls, and for those of you who are even more tech-savvy, you can control your television with an app on your phone. What a grace to parents whose children lose remotes. We can control the things we hear. If it's on the radio, we can simply turn it off. And friends, I think that oftentimes we do very much the same thing to the reading and the preaching of God's word. If we don't like it, we can ignore it. What's more, if we don't feel comfortable with the teaching, we can externalize it and say, it's not about me. I hear what he's saying. It's a nice sentiment. It's not even for my generation. It's not for this time. Maybe it's just for the people of the biblical era. Maybe it's for somebody that's not like me, a bad person. After all, I'm a good person. I don't struggle with this thing or that thing or in the book of Romans chapter 1. I'm not an idolater. I don't engage in the false worship of false gods. Rather, I'm here every Sunday. It's, it's not for me. Or last Sunday, you may say, hearing that text and that passage, I don't struggle with same-sex attraction. I don't struggle with homosexuality. That's not for me. That's for someone else. Well, this morning as we come back to the Word of God, to the Apostle Paul's continued discourse on sin, I want to encourage you. I want to call you to press that down in yourself and not to seek safety behind pushing things away to other people or ignoring things while they're being said, but to simply seek security in the grace of the Word of God. And that if He gives you this Word, that He intends it to pour out mercy upon you in your life today. So have open ears. Have open minds. Don't hate the offense of biblical conviction. Four things I want us to see this morning in verse 28. Firstly, the danger of judging God. The danger of judging God in verses 29 through 31. The extent of total depravity. The extent of total depravity. In the latter part of verse 32, the desire for sinful companionship. The desire for sinful companionship. And then in the former part of verse 32, the insufficiency of knowledge. The insufficiency of knowledge. So again, here we are, picking up where we left off last week. 
Verse 28, we're continuing and closing out chapter 1. We are approaching the one-third point in the discourse on sin that Paul writes into the book of Romans. Again, the arc of this is to convince all people of their need for Jesus so that no man may say, I don't need him. That's a Jewish gospel. I don't need him. That's a thing for Jerusalem. I don't need him. I'm a good person. But rather, all people would simply say, Lord God, I am undone if not for him. And let me remind you that in verse 28, whenever Paul says, uh, and since they, the they that we're speaking of in this section, is specifically Gentile peoples. Okay, Paul's writing to Rome, he's going to write to the Jews, but here in this section he's writing specifically to Gentiles. If you're not familiar with who that is, that's everybody in the world that's not a Jew. And so with relative assurance, on the whole, I generally can say that that's to us. That's to us. It was to Paul's Roman hearers, it was to his barbarian hearers, it was to his Greek hearers, it was to his every sort of hearer that wasn't raised in the covenant community of the people of Israel. And here in verse 28, we have the third expression of God's judgment against humanity that knows him, yet in sin refuses to honor him. And we have once again this judicial charge read against them, this penalty. And so God gave them over. He gave them over once again. And this morning it is to a depraved mind. To do the things that ought not to be done. And in verse 28... Paul describes the depravity of our mind. He begins this pursuit of the fallen mind, the effects of sin on the mind. Now, you have to understand, in the Bible, the mind engages the affections. So we're not going to take and put a measuring tape between heart and mind and make some kind of division between the affections and the thoughts. That's, I believe, an artificial thing for us to do. Understand, it's the inner life of a person. It's the depraved, the sinful, the fallen inner life of a person. And the ESV translates verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that God gave them over. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And then whenever I look at the text in Greek. I looked at the words here that make up a phrase, they did not see fit. It's one word. And it's hard for us to give it an equivalent in English, but if I were to translate this and also the word there in the ESV acknowledge, you could otherwise translate it this way because it gets at it. And because they did not consider or they did not think God worthy to be acknowledged, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Because they did not think that God was worthy. The words of evaluation and examination, that's what's being said. They put God to a test 
mentally in their minds, in their hearts, and in their affections, and did not consider him to make the grade and to pass the test of being worthy for their thinking, for their acknowledgement, for the engagement in mind and heart. Again, what Paul is describing here is the judgment of God in the minds of sinful men. Do you understand it? It is what happens when men simply say, I will be the one who decides what I do in my mind and in my heart concerning him. I will put him to the test and under the scrutiny of my will. It's what men do when they judge God. Ultimately, they say he isn't even worthy of a single thought. And this may seem like bizarre talk here. Something you've never heard. Something you think, well, pastor, you're quite original. But don't you also experience this? Ah, That's getting personal. But don't you experience this? A battle for the mind and the heart between the world, our desires, and the God of heaven? Don't you experience this? With media? How much media you think about, whether it's sports media, whether it's political media, whether it's the hobbies you indulge, whatever it is, the TV show you really enjoy, whatever. Whether it's life, the things you think about, your struggles, your worries, your aspirations, your own self-identification, your family and the things you hope for them, the things you fear for them. Let me just simply say, as a parent, we are terrified for the future of our children And rightfully, or in my opinion, often very unrightly, we are consumed with fear over the future of our offspring to where that dominates our minds and brings anxieties and stresses that rob the sovereign God of the faith that we should have in him. The battle for the mind, whether it's media, whether it's life, or maybe even your own emotions. What do you think about all the day? How upset you are, how displeased you are. You're a dark cloud. You're like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. You're positive, positive, positive. Everything must be positive. We want to do things that are positive. Think things that are positive. It's going to be this way or that way. A heart consumed. Maybe you're also consumed with thoughts regarding your job. Or maybe you can relate to this one, the mindless scrolling. You ever played the zombie at home? I have. Too often. The mindless scrolling where I just go up and down my stupid smartphone. You ever know this? Hours wasted. My phone does this terrible thing to me once a week. It sends me this alert that buzz, buzz, buzz right whenever I'm going to use the phone the most because it knows. It's keeping tabs. And it says, Nick, you've used your phone this many hours today, this many hours this week, and this is the average over the month. I don't know about you, but whenever I see it ranging really, really, really high, I'm just completely ashamed. Because the reality is, is that my prayer life and my thoughts towards God, my meditation upon him and my time in the word pales in comparison. Per week, inordinate amounts, 15, 20, 30, 80 hours, 100 hours a week on your phone. 
doing a myriad of things. In the month, days committed to time on screen, thinking about mindless things often. An hour and a half in personal devotion. 30 minutes in the week for prayer. The low, the depth, there's this constant division. And what happens in the heart that this reveals is that we're judging God. And we're saying ultimately in ourselves, whether explicitly or implicitly, I think there are things more important than Him. I think I'm more important than Him. And so we indulge in the judgment of God and we find him not worthy of our acknowledgement, of our mind's consideration. It's terrible. Men, if you've been with us in the study, you'll have heard me describe theology in simplest terms. If somebody asks, what is theology? The easiest answer is thinking about God, right? William Perkins, whenever he was asked the same question, what is theology? He said, theology is the study of living blessedly forever. Why would he say such a thing? Because theology is simply thinking about the only one who is blessed Time spent in the consideration of God is the blessing of the heart. And time not spent with Him where He would simply say, I remove my hands to let you just have all of that free time in your own thought and in your own heart to do what you will is not blessedness. It's not self-fulfillment. It's entertainment to death. Even Apple says it's not healthy a company that could not care less about my soul. They say it's not healthy for me to engage in things like this. The study of living blessedly forever. Don't you want that? You see, the great danger is this, and it's it's the effect of whenever God looks at these people, at the Gentiles, at people who are all of those outside of his covenanted people. And he judges them and he gives them over to do with their minds what they want to do. To go in the way that they want to go. And to act according to their thoughts with their bodies. To do what ought not to be done. And that's a terrible judgment. Because as he's going to roll out in the next verse, it is a list of sins that result in a heart and a mind that is disconnected volitionally from God. I'll do what I want. I'll think what I want. I'll be who I want. And the judgment is the Lord saying, yes, you can have your sin, but sin only destroys. It doesn't bless So that is the judgment of God. God gave them over to it. The second thing I want you to see is the extent of total depravity. The extent of total depravity. The very next verse, verse 29, Paul begins this. And this is a huge list. It is uh, in three verses. 
a list of 21 sins that could be translated by a phrase sometimes, uh, but it's nonetheless 21 sins. And they're not really in any particular order. You can read this, you can argue with me, and maybe you're right and I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think they're in a particular order. And I've been warned by commentators uh, not to try to find order or then to impose order on it. But we still need categories because this is a sermon and we have to communicate. And so there are three categories of sins here and I think it follows a logical order that's in the text. uh, A progression, if you will, uh, of these sins. And uh, in verse 29, I think that the first of these divisions or categories is that of spiritual corruption. It's the most basic here that's made. And it's the thought that every sin flows from this, that they did not acknowledge God. So, or the result of that, or because of it, they had all sorts or all unrighteousness. I think that's exactly how the Greek says it. Just all unrighteousness in their hearts and in their minds. Their hearts were contrary to God, different from his plans, concerned with what they would want, their own fulfillment rather than the praise of the God of heaven. It's very basic, unrighteousness here. These are the things acted out. It's that which doesn't honor, doesn't reflect God, doesn't reflect his word, doesn't reflect his law. Verse 30 gives us one expression of this sin in a a one-word phrase, as it were. They're haters of God. God-haters. People that don't give their mind to him, he says, hands off, and they find themselves hating God. If you were with us a few weeks ago, you remember the testimony of the time I was having a discussion with a friend who was a self-avowed atheist. God doesn't exist. God doesn't exist. And after hours, in winning the argument, however that is, he simply shouted at me with anger, there is a God and I hate him. the mind and the heart, the hatred of God, the spiritual corruption of the depravity of the mind. The second category, which is enumerated a little bit larger, and you may contend with me that some of these points in the list can go back and forth, and I say, sure, fine, not an issue with me. The scripture gives it to you as one giant list. But the second is the category of moral corruption of the mind and of the heart. The second category of moral corruption. The first being that they are filled with wickedness. You know what wickedness means in general. Evil. I could enumerate that, but in the present day, I don't generally have to advertise what evil is. You could just look around and see it. Deceit or dishonesty and lying. A smokescreen. Things aren't as they seem. They're filled with it. Malice or hatefulness. It says that they're arrogant, people consumed with themselves and the benefit of, of their, their own selves and the power that they have in the world. It says that they're inventors of evil. They come up with new means with which to attack one another and to deny the God of heaven. If you're a student of world history, you get that. You get that. 
It says that they are filled with an untrustworthy heart. They are untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and boastful. If you're sitting here thinking, wow, the Paul, you know, the Apostle Paul is just kind of blowing my hair back. This is a heavy stream. Yes. You understand what these are. Untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, boastful. I don't need to express this at any great extent. You get it. I hope. The third is the relational corruption of the mind of man. That he's greedy. He's out for himself. You could take that and toss that into the moral category. But this has immediate relevance to other people, doesn't it? Because he does not give to others. He's full of envy or jealousy. He looks at what other people have and he wants it for himself. He's covetous. Murder is in the heart and in the mind. Strife and disagreement person to person. Fighting gossiping, saying what ought not to be said in dishonorable ways to simply discredit other people, disobedient to parents. Hey, kids, disobedient to parents, not honoring mother or father, slanderers, again, tearing down and not building up others, insolent, being mean expressively to other people, just being mean. And why did I mention that there's a a delineation? Or why did I even want to put this into categories? Because I do think that it falls in this order. Spiritual corruption, a heart far from God. A heart that refuses to honor God and refuses to give thanks to Him. And then every other sin falls out from there. That's why the list has begun with unrighteousness. And then what happens there? It goes into the mind and it goes into the heart and the corruption of morals which are then played out to a depraved mind to then do the things that ought not to be done in relational corruptions. And, you know, what's Paul's point? I mean, he could have just quoted verbatim Genesis 6-5, couldn't he? But the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is broad. It's irreducibly so. You just can't get a less than. Why is he doing this? It's because he is trying to commit to his readers, his hearers, and you this morning, this simple truth. That the extent of sin in our minds is total, and in our hearts is total. Between us and him, between us and his law for us, and us and our relationships to other people. There is a desperate state of the heart and the mind of humanity and every portion of them is affected. The extent of depravity is totality. You need help. That's the great weight of this testimony. It should be like a list just shooting bullets again and again. It's intended for us to feel that. The next point of the sermon, if we look at the latter portion of verse 32, and we're going to come back to the first part of verse 32. 
but it is the desire for sinful companionship. They not only do them, the sinful things, but they give approval to those who practice them. It's talking about here, Paul's talking about how people do sin and then how they relate to other people regarding to their sins. And it's interesting, it's like Paul understands the culture here very well. We love clubs, don't we? We love clubs, we love tribes, we love other people to share in what we love and to participate in the things in which we do, whether it's a hobby, you're in a fishing fine, whatever, cycling, an identification with a branch of the military or whatever it is, a denomination, whatever. We love to associate people with whom we share commonalities And when we don't share commonalities with people about the things that we love, what do we generally do? We try to encourage other people to like the things that we like, right? And in some of those instances, it's entirely innocent. And at least one innocence, in in one instance, it's glorious in the evangelism of the church. But Paul's speaking about sin and sinners delighting in solidarity, having other people participate and be encouraged to sin with them in the way that they sin. Fill in the blank. Think of any sin today that you may have heard about or you're aware of or even one that you feel in your heart. I'm not encouraging you to do this, but I would generally say if you do a Google search, you'll find somebody celebrating it, encouraging other people to do it with T-shirts and marches and protests for rights regarding this thing or that thing or another thing with false religions that major on this thing or that thing, the power of anger and malice and all that sort of thing. But why do people do this? Uh, This is a strange thing to even say, but why do people do this? I think it's this. If we find other people to agree with us in the things that we do, we can look around ourselves and say to ourselves, if everyone else is doing it, it can't be wrong. If everyone else is doing it, it can't be wrong. The things that I love, even though the word of God says it's wrong, if everybody else does it, I'm okay and I'm vindicated and I can do it and there's no issue. It's finding another testimony and another testimony and another testimony to ultimately sin in the way in which we want and to thumb our nose in the face of God. There's only you and you say that, well, I deny your word. Everybody else says it's okay. There's safety in numbers. And it's because of this. When we sin, we feel, at least in some measure or some portion the conviction of conscience that this is not right because of the testimony of all of creation that there is a God and that he delights for our holiness and the testimony directly of Scripture. People never want to be told that they are doing a wrong thing or that they need to change. A desire for sinful companionship Inevitably, if you watch somebody deny Christ or do this or that or fall into this sinful lifestyle or that sinful lifestyle, what will inevitably follow is the, the attempt to bring someone else along. The attempt to bring someone else along in the sin 
and in the waywardness. And then if we look, lastly, at the first portion of verse 32, we see the insufficiency of knowledge. Please forgive me for taking and putting these things in a different order. However, from a communication standpoint, I felt it best. We read in verse 32 that though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet still they do them. Not only do they do them, but they give approval to others to do them as well. Did you catch it? Though they know. Now people have looked at this word, though they know, the word for knowledge there, and they've tried to put that in some past tense. Greek doesn't quite have it. There's not a Greek past tense. Even if you have somebody that tells you that, there's no Greek past tense. It's rather a simple occasion of a thing without reference to time called an aorist tense. That's what we have here. This is indicative Though they know, it indicates present knowledge, or at least knowledge that is had. Let me just say that. It doesn't have reference to presence or past. Just that they have it. They have knowledge. Possession, if you will. That's what it speaks of. Because some people want to say, well, maybe this is speaking about people who had knowledge, but they lost knowledge. And so, in essence, they're ignorant at this point. It's past tense. It's not what it's saying. It is that they know, and yet they still do, and encourage other people to also join them in doing. They know it dishonors God. They know that it's not a right thing. They know that these things have real relevance and real punishment, yet they still do. What's the point? Why am I laboring this? It's to say to you, friends, knowledge isn't enough. Not enough. You can know the right thing and do the wrong thing. Every demon in hell knows the law of God and hates God. Adam and Eve knew God's law to not eat, yet they ate. You can know the right thing and do the wrong thing. And why am I laboring it? It's because for the majority of you, you are professing Christians and you are not a foolish people. You're doctrinal. You're well-trained and well-catechized for the most part. And I can generally say that most of you are reading theology. And I want to tell you something that ought to scare me straight out of my shoes. And that is you can know every right thing, every point of theology. But if it doesn't convert the heart, you can still sin against God and be so far from Him. Orthodoxy does not convert apart from faith and obedience. Why am I so worked up? Why do I even care? It's because I had classmates that I sat through hundreds of hours of lectures and read thousands of pages of scripture who preached the word and prayed the word and then evidenced themselves to have no heart for God and deny him and apostatize and live in sin. Because it's heaven or hell. Knowledge without faith is insufficient. Faith must 
produce obedience to the word of God. Or it's not faith. Now why do I even labor this? It's to call you this morning to examine yourself. Not to doubt your salvation, but to in every way question yourself and examine your faith. Am I clinging to Jesus? You're not saved by orthodoxy. You're saved by his grace through faith. And I plead with you. Know Jesus. Love Jesus. And hide yourself in him by faith. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and for their teaching. And we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that takes out a heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. That causes blind eyes to see and deaf ears to hear. That brings us as subjects of King Jesus to kneel before his throne and to worship him in his glory. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that you would be merciful to us. That we might know your law and believe in your Son so that the law on our behalf may be fulfilled. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that you would build up our church in faith and help us to delight in your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.